1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Caroline Benham, the FT's financial regulation correspondent. Joining me in the studio is Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor, and we'll also be talking to Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent in Hong Kong. While from New York, we'll hear from Alistair Gray, the US banking correspondent. For our first item, we're going to look at a report by the Banking Standards Board that shows that one in eight bankers has said it's difficult to progress in their careers without, quote, «flexing ethical standards» while more than a third worry about the negative consequences of voicing any concerns. Here to discuss that with me is Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor, and also Colette Bowe, who chairs the BSB. So Dame Colette, I think this was the second survey that the BSB undertook. Could you explain a little bit about what you were trying to uncover?
2: Yes, indeed. And in fact, just to get it quite right, it's actually the first full survey that we did, what we did the year before was a pilot study as much to test the effectiveness of our survey technique as anything else. So this year, the year we've just reported on, is the first year of our fully worked out survey. What we were looking at was how to understand what makes for a good business culture in a bank There are some generic features of good business culture, but we are particularly interested in what that means for banks. And our report looks at a number of different elements, respect, honesty, competence, all of those things, which together in their various combinations go to make up a good culture. What we're saying is let's probe down into what a good culture might look like in a particular business. So for each of the firms that we looked at, who are the members of the Banking Standards Board, we did a survey of their employees. We had focus groups with various groups of people in the firm, and we had quite structured discussions with senior executives, board members, chairmen, etc. So in total, we surveyed 28,000 people across the industry, which I think makes this the biggest survey of this sector in the UK I think.
1: Certainly fairly comprehensive there's a lot of it that makes for sobering reading as well though what were you most surprised by?
2: The thing that most concerned me were two things one is the number of people who said that they felt they would have to flex their ethics to get on And in a quite different way, the number of people who said that working for their particular firm had a negative impact on their health and well-being. About 13% of people said that they felt that they would have to flex their ethical standards. And nearly a half of people in the survey said that to a greater or lesser extent, working in their organisation had a negative effect on their health or well-being. And I thought in their different ways, both of those were very, very concerning results. And the only thing I can say that is positive on the back of that is that the boards of the banks where we have presented detailed results have shared my deep concern.
1: On the statistic regarding the flexibility of ethical standards, as it were... Senior managers regime, for one, has been in place for a year. That's just one example of really a plethora of initiatives designed to shake up culture in the city. Does this survey suggest that we're perhaps not as far along that road as you would like?
2: No, it doesn't suggest that, Caroline, because I have to say we recognise that this road is a long one. Everybody's learned lessons. Now we know what to do. There have been a number of regulatory initiatives, etc., etc. Nobody is saying that. I think we at the Banking Standards Board, the people who lead our member firms, the regulators, in fact, all recognise that to change deep-rooted cultures is a long job. The thing that makes me feel positive about what we're doing is that people have joined up to make the journey and have recognised that the banking sector has, to a quite a large extent, lost the trust of the people that it's here to serve.
1: This particular survey was anonymous. Do you think that there is a case for really holding feet to the fire and starting naming banks that don't quite live up to
2: the ideal? The survey is only anonymous in the sense that the report we've just published does not name names. The detailed reports have gone to each bank, Now, would us publishing those detailed reports on our website and saying this is what we found about Bank X, would that hold feet to the fire? I'm not at all persuaded by that. I don't think that would be a particularly productive way to deal with the kind of deep-rooted issues that we have here. I'm more interested here in bank boards taking ownership of issues than in putting up posters on the wall saying A is better than B.
1: And presumably those findings can be shared with the regulator?
2: If the regulator so wishes, and indeed they very often do. So there's no sense in which any of this is being withheld from the people who need to have access to it. But these reports are owned by the boards of
1: banks. And Dame Collette, you said there's quite strong take-up at the moment for banks to voluntarily join the BSB. What would you say to those that are yet to join?
2: I would say we hope you can now see the value of this project. Those banks, large and small, and indeed building societies who've joined us, have all attested to the value that they are getting out of this honest, penetrating and challenging analysis that's being presented to them. Frankly, if I was on the board of a bank, I would find this extremely useful. So my message to those who have not yet joined is, I think it would be quite a good idea if you thought further about the value to you in running your business through getting this kind of honest feedback from an impartial source. But in the end, this is voluntary.
1: Dame Coletbo, thank you very much. So Martin, what did you make of what Dame Coletbo had to say and of the survey itself?
3: I think that... She's resistant to naming and shaming, which is understandable given that she's trying to encourage more banks to join the Banking Standards Board. At the moment, they've got about 35 members, including most of the British banks and a few of the foreign banks that have large operations here in the UK. But they've still got some way to go because the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, they haven't signed up, nor have the big Swiss banks, UBS and Credit. And there's apparently talks with some of those in the process of trying to persuade them to sign up. Clearly, the regulators here in the UK are very supportive. But at the moment, you've got to ask whether there is enough evidence of this showing that things are changing. You've got to say that of late, there haven't been new big banking scandals in the UK. It's more been with the regulators.
1: Not least at the Bank of England this week with their problem with Charlotte Hogg, the uh, new deputy governor and COO who has had to step down because of this perceived conflict of interest with her brother being at Barclays.
3: Well, exactly. And by the way, the Bank of England is not signed up to the Banking Standards Board either so maybe maybe they should but clearly there are still problems within these banks in terms of their culture their organisation when you've got a third of people working in banks saying they're afraid to speak out because there might be negative consequences for them when they see the way that business is being done and they think there are problems with that that's a big issue I think for these banks and they should be addressing that their whistleblowing channels are clearly inadequate if people are scared that they're going to pay a price for that and so I think regulators and banks need to work together to address some of the issues that the banking standards board is. Rightly raising. Thanks, Martin.
1: So, on to HSBC. Martin, fairly big hire in the shape of Mark Tucker, who is currently head of Asian Life Insurance AIA. It's unusual that he's actually an outsider, not something that HSBC does very often, no?
3: Ever, actually. HSBC, a very insular group, has a history of always appointing the top jobs internally from a small cadre of mainly or exclusively white men who have come up through the ranks, often spent their whole careers at HSBC. And so in that respect, it's a big change for Europe's biggest bank and injection of fresh blood, fresh ideas, an outsider coming in, taking a fresh look at the bank, which has got a fair share of challenges that it's facing Its returns are lagging below its cost of capital, have done for most of the past five or six years, since the current top management team of Douglas Flint, the chairman who Mark Tucker will be replacing in October, and Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive, who um, has said that he plans to step down next year. So the first challenge for Mark Tucker will be to find a replacement for Mr Gulliver. That is expected to be an internal replacement rather than an external one, because I think just simply the shock for such a conservative originally founded by Scottish Presbyterians in 1856. This this bank, it would just be too great a shock for them to have an external chairman and chief executive.
1: Are there any names in the frame already for that?
3: Yeah, there are a couple of uh, internal candidates who are seen as front runners. I wouldn't say they were nailed on favourites and exclusively only them. But John Flint, no relation to the chairman, is head of the retail and wealth management business. And he's worked in the investment bank before. He's worked on strategy. He's come up through the ranks. I think he's worked at HSBC most of his career. And the other one is slightly younger, but equally ambitious, Antonio Simos, who runs HSBC's main European business, and he is seen as very talented, if slightly less experienced than someone like John Flint, but both of them are strong internal candidates.
1: Okay, great. We'll now go to Don Wineland, who's our Asia Financial correspondent based in Hong Kong, who's known Mr Tucker for about six years from running AIA over there. Don, what's your impression of Mr Tucker?
4: Well, he's highly regarded here in Hong Kong. He's well known among the insurance community. Outside of the insurance business, I don't think he's as well known here. So I think he is a new name to lots of people in the banking business.
1: Right. And how would you describe his management style?
4: Well, it's a bit daunting to get on the phone with him sometimes to do... uh, Journalist calls. He's often very curt with people on the phone if they're not asking the types of questions that he's uh, looking to discuss. He, he's known for being very driven, very focused, not necessarily the warmest person that I've come across.
1: So he doesn't suffer fools gladly then?
4: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But, he, you know, he, he's also very polite and uh, good to talk to as well.
1: So he's got quite a lot on his to-do list already, as we've heard from Martin. Do you think he has the nows, the skill set to follow all of those
4: through? Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, he's very, very well regarded for the work that he's done at AIA. When he took over at AIA, I mean, AIA was in a position to grow very rapidly. It was a very cash-rich business that had been, I guess, underutilized by AIG at that time. So he took over the business at a very opportune moment. It'll be interesting to see what he does at HSBC, given that it's definitely a much bigger challenge than the work that he's done at AA. I would say.
1: OK, Don, thanks very much. So spare a thought for those poor equity research analysts. It's a tough gig out there these days. Alistair Gray was speaking to Mike Mayo, who's one of the biggest name analysts for American banks. He's just lost his job, though, after CLSA shut its U.S. equities business. Alistair began by asking him how the job has changed in his 25 years on Wall Street.
5: Well, one thing that hasn't changed is that when you work on Wall Street, you can go into work any given day and be fired at a moment's notice. So (laughs) it's... So I uh, shouldn't shouldn't laugh. Sorry. sorry. Uh, yeah, well unfortunately I found that out the hard way last week when I went into the office and they shut down the US business and I was fired just like that. And that's seventeen years after I was fired once before. So I've worked at a variety of firms from UBS to Lehman Brothers to Credit Suisse and I've had a nice twenty five year run, but I never take it for granted. I intend to stay in the game and get another job at a brokerage firm. Um, But that's been a constant, is that it can be volatile for a career.
6: How has the role changed?
5: Well, the role of the analyst is still the same, and that is to ensure that corporations allocate resources effectively and to hold managements accountable for doing so. I mean, that's our job. That job description has never changed, and I, I take pride in trying to perform the job that way. I will say back in the 1990s, though, there were a few more winks and nods as far as, oh, how's the quarter? I'm smiling, aren't I? Meaning, how are the quarterly earnings? From the company. From the company. I'm smiling, aren't I? Like, really, like, we're going a little bit past the gray area here. And so I was like, I was surprised to see that in the early 1990s. But doesn't
6: that still a widespread suspicion that that, maybe maybe not that um, explicit, as it were, but there's still a, a lot of concern about the independence of sell-side equity research?
5: As far as that specific example, uh, you know, practices were changed after the crash of the tech bubble in the early 2000s. But as far as the, the carrot and the stick, corporations, how they treat analysts, I mean, there's, there's carrot. If uh, an analyst says something nice about a corporation, they might have the company come to their conference and say nice things about the analyst. Um, and as far as the stick, if the analyst is saying something not so nice about a company, then there can be retribution, whereas corporate management say something negative about the analyst, they don't return their phone calls, they don't get meetings, and they play with a, a disadvantage. I'm proud to have been the only Wall Street analyst to testify to Congress for the 2002 law, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, and my presentation was on conflicts of interest on Wall Street. And unfortunately, those conflicts of interest you know, still exist today, maybe in different forms but as with any industry i think it's the 80 20 rule that you know talks about 20% of the employees providing 80% of the value and you know, over time i do find that information gets out and those analysts who are good you know are rewarded and those who aren't good don't always last
6: on that note what do you think is the outlook for equity research departments
5: well there's absolutely a societal need to have equity research at this time when especially in the United States, you might be pulling back on regulation. You know, Analysts help to keep corporations accountable. I mean, the issue with the financial crisis was nobody was minding the store. You know, The markets thought the regulators were monitoring the, the big banks, and the regulators thought the markets were regulating the big banks and the financial system. And the case, nobody was. So now we've had regulators step in, sometimes with a heavy hand here over the, this decade. Uh, and now if regulators are pulling back, you need market participants. And that's what... Brokerage research does. It helps to hold those managements accountable for allocating resources as well. Now, as far as is it a wise idea for banks to go ahead and provide research, we might be going toward more of a barbell approach. So, on the larger firm size, um, it's not just about equity research. And with equity research, banks develop thought leadership. And that thought leadership can be leveraged to gain additional customer relationships where you can sell other sorts of products, whether it's, you know, um, some sort of advisory activity or fixed income or lending or an overall customer relationship. So from a product focus to a relationship. But focus.
6: isn't part of that the relationship actually investors looking for access to, to the management through, through the analysts and uh, aren't some analysts effectively become um, sort of corporate chaperones?
5: If that's the case, and that has been the case, and unfortunately, that would always be the case in this industry, and there's always a few people in an industry, and sometimes more, such as before the tech bubble um if that's the case, well people are trying to cut corners, and that's a very short term attitude, and you know that that that's wrong, but you know, I think we're talking about an overall thought leadership perspective, so if you have a vision of where your industry is headed and you can advise people based on that industry, that's an effective way to go ahead. And leverage uh, equity research. I've had negative calls on companies and reports where the investment bankers took the negative report and said, "This is what you need to improve."
6: And how does a model? How is the model going to work given the rise of passive investing technology? You know, is is the next Mike Mayo an algorithm?
5: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. You show me an analysis of a bank prepared by a robot, and I'll rip it to shreds. Having said that, if If my job or investing is a 10 step process, certainly robots might be able to get you to step two or three by compiling basic information and and putting it in a usable form. But I know for my my calls, the analysis of structural changes, nuanced points in the CEO letter, a reading of the proxy, kicking the tires, I cover banks, going into branches, going into a headquarters office, things that don't fit neatly in an algorithm are sometimes my greatest insights.
6: And just on your thoughts on the U.S. banking sector, you turned bullish for the first time in quite some time. And I just wonder, you know, given the huge rally we've seen since the election, you know, is now a good time for investors to step in?
5: You know, I'm proud of my, my long-term record. I've, I've certainly made mistakes. But in the 1990s, you know, I was very bullish on consolidation and improving efficiency in the banking industry. That worked. Last decade, very bearish on the incredible risk that was taken on, the high leverage and that you saw through the financial crisis, how, how that ended. And over the last uh, year or so, went very bullish and started upgrading a few years ago on U.S. banks having the strongest balance sheets in a generation and more recently accelerating revenue growth. So that's a very nice combination. Bank stocks are up 50 to 60% since that time. There's likely more to go over the next three years. But a little short-term caution because not everyone's owning the banks for the reasons I just stated, like, oh, what great balance sheets. I think a lot of people are expecting a nice Trump bump, benefits from lower taxes and higher interest rates and a trillion dollars infrastructure investment. And all I'd say there is, you know, there could be a, a speed bump for the Trump bump. And right now you're teed up for things all working out well, but one distraction from overseas or something else that pushes the administration off its current path could at a minimum delay the timing for some of those political moves.
6: All right, Mike. Well, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me.
1: And that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Don, Alistair, Mike and Colette for their contributions and to thank you all for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane Until next week, goodbye.